Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase, Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Tesuetmuk territory within the unceded traditional lands of Swetmukulu. As settlers, we take seriously our responsibility to center and uplift Indigenous creatives and to work to build a more inclusive YA environment for all marginalized folks. Not gonna lie, could have done with a little bit more interesting perspectives in some of the texts that we're talking about today. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit, just a little bit. So, folks, we are talking about two different movies. One is Bring It On from the year 2000, celebrating its 20th anniversary this week. And we're also going to briefly touch on the new Netflix film, Work It, which has just dropped last week. Which also, inexplicably, does not contain Missy Elliott's Work It. Right? I (laughs) waited the whole movie! (laughs) Yeah. There's something fun about all of these competition-themed YA texts that just have to include the word it, to which I would like to say, in the immortal words of Not Another Teen Movie, what is it? (laughs) And has it already been broughten? Well, it has at least been broughten five times, from (laughs) again to sheer smack. (laughs) I'm not going to lie, I've seen every Bring It On movie, and it played a focal point of my wedding ceremony. (laughs) It was a literal table at my reception. That's how much Bring It On means to me. Okay. (laughs) I warned you, Brenna. I said, (laughs) be careful how you talk about this film. Okay. (laughs) Let's just skip it. (laughs) Brenna's like, I have nothing good to say about this. (laughs) But before we have to dig into that, Brenna, we have a little bit of correspondence to cover as well as you have some homework to share. Yes. Where do you want to start? Let me get the correspondence covered. Cool. Okay, so we have an email from constant listener Miriam, and she... A friend of the show, I think, at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I love our weekly interactions with her, where she tells me that she likes you more than she likes me. That's why she's my favorite. (laughs) Everybody likes you more. That's why you're all my favorite. All right, fair. So Miriam has written in with some recommendations for additional lesbian YA text, because of course, a couple of weeks ago, we did some recommendations for indigenous books, as well as female to female texts. So she has recommended a couple of additional ones for our listeners. Nice. Hit it. Absolutely. So the first one is Juliet Takes a Breath by Gabby Rivera. And the logline is, Juliet is a lesbian Latina from the Bronx who goes on an internship over the summer with a very white feminist author in Portland, Oregon. And one of the reasons that Miriam likes this is because Rivera isn't afraid to call out white feminists. And additionally to that, the love and lust is sexy. The women of color are all very lovely. And they also take no BS. But Miriam also suggests that it's refreshing to read about a main character who masturbates her period pain away, which is like oh, interesting. a pretty candid topic that yeah. I think will speak particularly to female listeners because it's just not something that gets touched on. No, it's ever. true. All so right. that is Juliet Takes a Breath by Gabby Rivera. 
And then a couple of other recommendations. We Are Okay by Nina LaCour. And Miriam says it's not an easy read because it's about grief, but it's Mm. beautiful and heartbreaking. And because the main character doesn't really know what's going on, you as a reader are also kept in the dark. So it's giving me a bit of a Tiffany D. Jackson kind of vibe, but I think it's uh, more dramatic and less mysterious in that regard. Oh, cool. All right. I could be wrong. I may hear back from Miriam. (laughs) And then... uh, Final recommendations, which she doesn't spend a lot of time going into, but she says that these are both YA queer horror texts, so mm. I feel like she's coming after my interest with these. We've got Wilder Girls by Rory Power and Sawkill Girls by Claire Legrand, and then finally The Devouring Grey by Christian Lynn Herman. So those are all three YA queer horror texts for the lesbian listeners or people who are interested in queer lesbian horror texts. Nice. Yeah. Thanks, Miriam. Okay, so I have finally read some books, Joe. This is a major accomplishment. (laughs) I'm pretty excited about it. In fact, I have finally actually caught up on my reading challenge on the Goodreads. (laughs) <laughs> which as we've talked about before is a big hurdle for you it was it was the problem so I actually read a bunch of things and I'm gonna try to give rather than going into like any one of them in depth I'm gonna give a bunch of little like one sentence like yays or nays okay. and encourage folks if you use goodreads to friend me on goodreads and we can talk about books there I see so you're just plugging your other social media connections is yep. what you're saying yep yep okay <laughs> I see how this works now the other reason I'm not going to go into depth on them is because most of these are books that we forecasted. So we've already talked about the plots. So I finally read Yes, No, Maybe So by Becky Albertalli and Aisha Saeed. Mm-hmm. Joe, you were reading this. Did you finish it? I didn't. I had to return it to the library because it was too popular and I couldn't renew it. <laughs> it's super cute. It has elections and kissing. I highly recommend it. Right. I read Internment finally by Samira Ahmed, which Ooh. is that sort of near future dystopia about... Muslims in America being sent into uh, effectively concentration camps. Yeah, I was really interested in this one. How did it pan out? It's extremely good. It was a very difficult read, especially because I think I started reading it on the day that we had those reports out of Portland about the secret police. Oh, yeah. So it was really jarring. But I think that Ahmed does a really beautiful job of sort of this it could happen here kind of narrative. Mm. And I think it's worth reading. I think it's actually one of those books we should probably all be reading. Okay. I see. I read Love Creekwood finally, the Simon verse novella. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And? I loved it because you get a lot more Leah than I was expecting. Uh, but it's yeah. basically a series of emails between all the friends their first year away at university. Fun. Okay. Does it touch at all in the events of Love, Victor, or is it completely kind of standalone? Basically, all it does is explain to you why Simon is in New York when Love, Victor opens. I see. Okay. Yeah. So more for fans of the Love, Simon universe than the Love, Victor universe. Definitely for fans of the Love, Simon universe. Yeah, 100%. I read Tomboy Survival Guide by Ivan E. Coyote, which is... I don't think I'm familiar with that one. Oh, it's really great. It's sort of all about the experience of growing up genderqueer and realizing sort of that you don't fit in spaces and sort of a progression of understanding what transness means. Okay. So this is well, a collection of sort of essays and stories about transness. And it it's set up as kind of like, how would you tell a young person to survive in a world where their gender doesn't fit the expectations of the people around them? 
Right. Okay. And some of them are really sad and some of them are really, really funny. And all of it is really just disarming and lovely. Ivan Coyote, I've read most of their work and um, I just highly recommend it for interesting explorations of gender. Okay. I read Don't Stand So Close to Me, which is a middle grade book about COVID-19 that is out already somehow. Yeah, you mentioned this to me (laughs) offline and I didn't really know what to make of it. It's fine, but it's very much like here's how COVID-19 impacts very privileged white children in a suburb. I see. Okay. I can't play with my friends or do the things I want to do. Yeah, exactly. And like some of the parents are frontline workers, but it's very, um, yeah, it's just very much like this is a thing that's kind of happening in the world, but doesn't really touch me. Right. Okay. (laughs) Which, you know, for kids in that position, I think it could be a useful middle grade explainer text, but it's not particularly rich. And that's by Eric Walters. And then lastly, I read The Prince and the Dressmaker by Jen Wang, which is a fantastic fairy tale about a prince who loves wearing dresses and the seamstress who makes them for him. Cool. Yeah. And that's it. That sounds delightful. Honestly, it was a good reading month. I've really caught up. I mean, yeah, (laughs) it sounds like you've had a lot of fun on the end of your vacation. I can't decide if I'm becoming less critical as a person, although we're about to talk about Bring It On, so we'll see. (laughs) Or if I'm just getting good at picking books for myself as I get older. But I seem to have more better reading experiences the older I get. That is encouraging because I feel like there's nothing more discouraging than when you read a bad book and you just think, ugh, this is my time and my energy. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, I'm not sure what it is, but I'm definitely having fewer DNFs, did not finishes, and fewer frustrating reading experiences. So that's nice. Good. Okay. Well, right. uh, listeners, if you're having similar experiences where you think, hey, here's a book that Brenna could add to her great reads list, be sure to let us know. Please do. All right. So let's talk about this Bring It On, which is a phenomenon celebrating its 20th anniversary. Ever been to a cheerleading competition? We're the best. We have fun, we work hard, and we win national championships. We have a problem. About what? You ripped off those cheers. We've had the best squad around for years, but no one's been able to see what we can do. We're in trouble. But you better believe all that's going to change this year. I swear, I had no idea. Do you think a white girl came up with those moves? This isn't about cheating. This is about winning. Can we just beat these buffies down so I can go home? We might have to have a rumble. I'll take out famous losers for $200. Shut up, moron! You want to make it right? Then when you go to nationals, bring it. That way, when we beat you, we'll know it's because we're better. I'll bring it. Don't worry. Come on, let's go get it on! We need a new routine, something amazing and fresh. We've been saying we're the best. Now it's time to put up or shut up. Let's do this. I don't know how I missed this. Uh, I mean, this would have been the year, what, before you came to university? Yes. Yeah. So hypothetically, you were finishing high school and you were living your own bring it on style life. (laughs) You were very focused on doing your own bring it on style activities. Yeah, that sounds like me, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) So this was a teen film that was released in the summer, obviously, Mm -hmm. because it's August. And 
It's directed by Peyton Reed, who at the time hadn't done a ton, but has actually since gone on to do a great revisionist rom-com called Down With Love, which is a Ewan McGregor and Renee Zellweger film. I adore that movie. Adore it. So good. And of course, most people who are cultural consumers of more populist art would know him as the director of the two Ant-Man movies in the Marvel Universe. Is Ant-Man more or less populist than Bring It On? Uh, I think it's probably been consumed by more people on a grand scale. But Bring It On ended up being a bit of a quiet, significant text in the way that it didn't open to a lot of fanfare. Like, it kind of came out in the doldrums of summer. People weren't really expecting much of it. Roger Ebert absolutely hated this movie because he found it vulgar and mean. (laughs) It's so 2000s in its humor. Holy godfathers. It's very 2000s in its humor, and some of those things have not aged particularly well, and particularly the performances by Carson Dunst in the lead as Torrance Shipman. A lot of people were excited about Eliza Dushku, who was coming off her season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Jesse Bradford was a bit of a novelty. I think this is kind of his peak, unfortunately, even though he is in a terrible baby fatal attraction movie that I covered for the other podcast called Swim Fan. I was very distracted because he is absolutely the exact kind of boy I had crushes on in high school. Right? Down to that friggin' smirk he makes every time he's watching her do anything. Mm-hmm. Yep. Their connection is adorable. It's so Even adorable. revisiting it after having seen this movie easily 20 to 30 times. <laughs> I just find their interactions, particularly the bathroom toothbrush cleaning scene. That scene is very cute. Very cute. Yeah. And then, of course, this is also a really notable film for Gabrielle Union, who literally has not aged in the 20 years. If you look at a picture of her now, she looks exactly the same. Correct. And I know that you likely had issues with some of the racial politics of this film, and I can't say that I disagree with you, but I will say that one of my absolute favorite things about this film is that the white girls don't win. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty significant at the time, because if you've watched any of these competition-themed YA entries, it is always about the underdog who manages to come back and win it all. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they're not underdogs is the weird thing. Like, they're just cheaters. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're underdogs in the way that they have to start from scratch, which puts them at a quote-unquote disadvantage, despite the fact that they are five-time national champions. (laughs) (laughs) And they've done it to themselves entirely, but okay. It was Big Red, Brenna. Big Red screwed them into the ground. And then Aaron. Oh, and Aaron is the worst. He's my favorite kind of terrible boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's cute in a 2000s kind of way. If you can forgive the fact that he's wearing a full length sweater with shorts in the summer. Yeah. Unforgivable sin. I feel strongly that he would be smelly. Uh, He would be smelly and he would be the kind (laughs) of guy who thinks that he's very attractive to women and... We're meant to think that he's a player based on the women that he's betting when he goes off to college. And all yeah. I could think of is the disdain that that one girl has when she says, you're, you're a cheerleader. cheerleader. <laughs> Which yeah. also plays into this casual homophobia and fear of effeminate men that this movie has. Uh-huh. Yes. But you know what? Quippy one-liners, Brenna. Quippy. <laughs> 
movie is endlessly quotable. You will forgive anything for a bit of sass, Joe Lipset. I do love the sass. <laughs> and I think that's one of the big reasons this film resonates with me strongly, but also it has a very big following in the queer community because it's about women who fight but don't catfight. Mm-hmm. But it also is just... Yeah, like, it's got the kind of dialogue that I think a lot of people wish they could just pull off in real life. And it feels on par with Buffy and Dawson's Creek in the way that no one actually speaks this way. And yet everyone in the film seems to be living it. In every way, it is a text of not just the 2000s, but 2000 in particular. The Mm -hmm. humor is mean in that way that was oh so mean <laughs> very much a sort of part of that moment i actually read something really persuasive the other day that argued that pop culture produced from 2000 to 2008 is some of the cruelest mm-hmm. that has been produced and it made a very persuasive connection to bush era politics and political discourse and the kind of cruelty that we see both in humor and also in the kind of reality television that was being produced back then aka the swan i was gonna say are you talking about the swan because i saw you tweeting about it and all i could think of was whoa there is something that i forgot existed and also was kind of glad to have forgotten yeah because it was horrible it was horrible Yes. Which is actually replicated in the Sparky Polastri sections of Bring It On, where he just goes down the line yes. and doesn't talk about anything positive of these absolutely gorgeous human beings on this team. Yes. Like, he literally compliments a woman for having good muscular tone and then proceeds to look over and say that her ass is so big it could form its own website, yes. which is also a very particular <laughs> 2000 thing, because yes. websites were new. <laughs> Yeah, I shouldn't say that I dislike this film. There's a lot to like about it. And the chemistry between Kristen Dunst and Jesse Bradford is really quite lovely. Mm -hmm. I was just sort of surprised and shocked, particularly by the homophobia. I also think that the general gender and racial politics are troublesome. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I was expecting. I certainly enjoyed much of it. And we probably should have clarified off the top, this was a first watch for you. Yes, yes, completely first watch. So I can imagine that this would be jarring to see for a first time because it's 20 years old and you can see the 20 years. He's every single one of them. <laughs> but I, I do want to address the thing that I feel like it goes unspoken, which is actually how fascinating... I find the Clovers, and in particular Isis, the Gabrielle Union character, Mm -hmm. because in other more traditional depictions of this kind of story, what you see is an animosity where there's absolutely no respect given, and the villains are capital V villains. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, we're presented with two people who are at odds with each other, but it's based on like a celebration of competition and being the best. And that means you have to beat the best, which means that they only succeed when the other one succeeds. And I think that's a really interesting commentary, particularly in the film's focus on more or less cultural appropriation. Yeah. Like this is about white people going into black communities and stealing the valuable assets and then profiting off of it. And to me, that is the most 2020 thing about this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I agree completely. It's weird to me, though, that that sin, the sort of that thieving, that appropriation kind of gets buried after the first 
act, right? Like once they've hired the choreographer yeah who is awful (laughs) right once they hire him and once we find out that like oh actually he's been selling this routine all over the place like then the focus is on Horrence's failure right and like we never mentioned the stealing again (laughs) big red's like yeah i might have stolen but you really screwed up (laughs) yeah i mean i think that's the film's unusual commentary on misguided blame like we never see big red get her comeuppance we don't really even see aaron get his comeuppance for the cheating because he doesn't care when she breaks up with him yeah i mean you want more from it particularly as a viewer now you're like at least punch him in the face or something (laughs) yeah but you're you're absolutely right i mean i was looking at it from a narrative construction point of view and i like the fact that we get the big conflict out of the way at the end of the first act which is oh my gosh we've been stealing and now we need to do things differently because in a lot of other films that would have actually been the third act conflict so oh no we find out that we've been cheating and now we need to like do something but it would have all been shoehorned into the end of the film mm-hmm. which is what we see in work it but so i do like it here for that purpose but i agree with you that it really is just the inciting incident and it doesn't come to anything yeah i don't find it being wildly satisfying i did like the fact that they came in second and i like that the team recognizes coming in second considering where they were Mm -hmm. three weeks previously as a as a success yes yeah i don't dislike the movie just don't get it i think okay yeah Yeah, I think you kind of have to live with the legacy of it. This was also a particularly good time period for Kirsten Dunst. So there was a lot of goodwill to her. She was transitioning out of teen roles into slightly more edgy, mature roles. So she had this, she had Drop Dead Gorgeous, which is a parody of small town beauty pageants, which is, if you had difficulties with this film... You would not have survived watching Drop Dead Gorgeous, Brenna, <laughs> which had come out the year before. And she had also done Dick, which is her political satire of the Deep Throat uh, Watergate pieces with Michelle Williams. Oh. So she was very much on her way to becoming this more accomplished actress, which is what we associate with her now that she has taken on more mature adult roles. Right. So it's it's an interesting kind of time capsule movie for that purpose as well. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about Work It? I mean, Work It is fine. <laughs> I fine. disagree. I think it's not good at all. <laughs> Beyonce, Queen Bay, I pray that you make my feet swift tomorrow and that you make my moves have swagger in the name of the single ladies video and the lemonade short film. I pray. Five, six, seven, eight. Senior year, I needed to join the dance team because the more extracurricular activities you do, the higher your chances are of getting into a top-tier college. Woodbright High. Oh, isn't that the school with the dance team? I keep it lit. Squirrelfriend, are you for real? Jazz, I need you to help me get on the dance team. You don't dance at all. The work at competition is in five months, and I don't need you stanking up the place. Fine. I'll start my own damn team then. There it is. Say what? The Thunderbirds have the best dancers in the school, so we need to find the diamonds in the rough. This guy is supposed to be the best flipper in town. That guy's like 15. Not him. The one that looks like Colin O'Brien. You're kidding. The guy can flip. 
we need a choreographer. This guy, Jake Taylor, captain the winning team three years in a row. We'd love to have you choreograph. What do you think? I think you can dance. Why do we look like a bunch of dental hygienists? What? I borrowed them from the nursing home. We look like we're about to go run a blood drive. So Work It is a film that just dropped on Netflix about a week and a half ago. And this is slightly different. So it's not cheerleading, it's dancing, which is in a way its own mini subgenre. You've got Jessica Alba doing Honey. You've got a bunch of the later Step Up movies. There was a brief period of time in the mid to late 2000s where pretty much any YA film that wasn't a horror film was a dance film. There's an entire category on Wikipedia, American Dance Films, and it has 124 entries. Yeah, and I'm not going to pretend like this is something that only comes out in the 2000s, because obviously there's fame and there's, uh, what's the one about the ballet company? uh, Honored that you think I know what you're talking about. You would maybe enjoy that one. I remember Save the Last Dance. There was Save the Last Dance, yeah. Saw that one. Center Stage. There we go. That's what I was thinking of. It's got, like, absolutely terrible acting in it, but the dancing at points is quite good. Well, that seems to be part of the theme, right? Like, these dancey movies are about the dancing, and I think that's where I always lose interest, because I'm not a criticism of people who dance, and it's a level of athleticism I will never achieve, but Mm -hmm. I don't find it that interesting to watch. Yeah, I feel like the dancing has to be of a caliber that it can stand independently, because it's treated like its own set piece. Dance movies to me are similar to horror films and comedies where you have these big moments and the film kind of stops so that you can just gaze at the spectacle. And Mm -hmm. in a dance movie, that's the sequences where you get to see very polished, very stylized, like musicality central sequences where people are just showing off the sheer athleticism. And they're often unfortunately surrounded by paper thin characters Mm -hmm. a flimsy romance Mm -hmm. and not great acting check 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 which is more or less what we get in work it unfortunately i think the big thing for me is that this film doesn't do anything like it's really content to tell a very familiar story Mm -hmm. and i think not always well no so it stars sabrina carpenter who is do you know her because i did not know her at all Yeah, so she's come off of Girl Meets World. She was the sort of troubled best friend character on that series. And so she sort of has the same, very similar emergent narrative as many Disney Channel actresses. She's got an album. I think she has three albums out, actually. Oh, okay. She's four. Sorry, I'm I'm incorrect. She has four albums out, um, and she's sort of, she's gone through that mill. I think she was discovered in a Miley Cyrus singing contest. So okay. Yeah, she's gone through that mill, and she was in Hate You Give, so you have seen her before. Right. Yeah, she's the white girl who doesn't understand. Oh, her. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't think she's terrible. Like, I've enjoyed her, but I don't think she's a particularly strong actress. She she still no. very much has that Disney Channel veneer about her. If she's going yes. to shed it, she needs to do that soon. And so she's not, she's not captivating to watch. And there's a bunch of strange decisions that are made in this film, I liked the premise very much. So the premise of the film is that Sabrina Carpenter's character is trying to get into university and she wants to go to Duke 
and she's sort of not interesting enough for the admissions counselor. And it's this ongoing trope in all of these getting into university movies where you meet the admission counselor who wants you to be like more creative, more interesting. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, oh, I guess I'm starting a dance team. There's more backstory to that, but also not really. Yeah, not really. And so I think the premise had the potential to be interesting. And I actually really enjoyed the chemistry between Sabrina Carpenter and... Jordan Fisher. Jordan Fisher. Who played... Did you recognize him? No. He was Peter Ambrose from P.S. I Still Love You. Oh, was he? Yeah. Oh. And I actually like the two of them together. And the chemistry between them makes her easier to watch. Like, the scenes where they're together are the best scenes in the film. Absolutely. Yeah. But ultimately, yeah, it's not doing anything interesting. Her dance team obviously wins the dance off. Mm-hmm. You can see it coming a mile away. And Yeah, exactly. And everybody gets what they wanted. The end. Also, and there's a bunch of just like inarticulate narrative leaps. Like Jordan Fisher's character, the whole point, the reason why he's coaching dance and not dancing is because he's injured his knee. Mm-hmm. But then at the end of the movie, he's perfectly capable of dancing. Yeah. And there's a throwaway line where he says, oh, it's not that I can't dance. It's that I could never dance and be like a top level dancer. So that's why he stopped. And you're just thinking, oh, well, that's convenient, which I hate as an argument. But But when they dance in the rehearsal room, he re-injures himself. Mm -hmm. So none Mm -hmm. of that makes sense. It also doesn't make sense that like the pivot of their success is rooted in this technicality. The only reason they make it to finals is because the team that would have kept them out One of the dancers isn't wearing the appropriate athletic support and he has an erection. So so this competition that is that focused on technicalities allows them to win. Even though he's not a student at the school. Dancer who's not a student at the school and wasn't like listed on their list of participants when they started and lets one of the participants show up halfway through the dance. Yeah, it's one of those things where you're just thinking this needed a script supervisor who was going to pay a little bit more attention to these details if they're going to be instrumental. Because we saw even in Bring It On that they sneak through to Nationals on a technicality because the winning team gets an automatic invite to go back, which again doesn't make any sense because why would they have been competing then at that stage? They would have had the automatic buy. Yeah. But in the case of Bring It On, it doesn't really matter because it's just like a slight hiccup. Whereas mm-hmm. in Work It, the entire back half of the film rests on that one technicality because they're such a terrible dance crew that yeah. they wouldn't have made it otherwise. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But I mean, honestly, most throwaway YA Netflix movies don't make any sense, right? Yeah. So. I don't find any of that to be unforgivable, which is why I say the movie is fine. There's nothing about this movie that isn't like what I would have expected. Mm. I think there's a nice range of diversities of actresses. I wish they hadn't put the white girl as the centerpiece, especially because it doesn't make sense because they're supposed to be trying to get her friend into the New York School of Dance or whatever. Yeah, Lisa Koshy, who plays jazz. I really like her, actually. I I think she's... found her a far more dynamic and interesting performer. And My favorite... Sorry, my favorite comedic bits in the film are when she's trying to get them to name the dance crew after her. Mm -hmm. It's -hmm. very funny. She's just got great comedic timing. She's the level of raunchy that I find funny. Right. Not over the top, just kind of the right amount. And um, Yeah, her lusting after the mattress guy is pretty amusing. It's pretty amusing. She would have been a much better lead. The problem with this film, honestly, the core problem with this film is that it's a vehicle for Sabrina Carpenter's post-Disney Channel career. Um, She's an executive producer on it. Okay. That's the whole reason why this movie exists. And so, yeah, it it suffers from that. Yeah, I don't like to call 
No, <laughs> let's just be clear. I do like to call certain actors and actresses charisma vacuums, mm-hmm. and I would definitely label her in there because whenever Quinn becomes the central focus, which unfortunately is a large part of this film because it's a vehicle for the actress, mm-hmm. I just started to tune out because she's not captivating enough. And frankly, the Quinn Ackerman character is grating. Yes. I don't think she herself is a charisma vacuum only because of how magnetic she is to watch with Jordan Fisher. Mm. But I do think that the character itself is boring, bland, and hard to watch. And they've styled her to be nigh on unwatchable. So she's got like these ridiculous, anytime you take a hot woman and try to make her an ugly teenage girl, right? Yeah, yeah. We've got the glasses and ponytail, except that there's no glasses. We just do ponytail and then... Egregiously heavy bangs and oversized clothing. Yep. Burlap sacks for days. Yeah. No. Yeah. I think you're giving her too much credit still, because I would credit a lot of the chemistry to be coming from Jordan Fisher. And that's not just because I find him eminently attractive. I've watched her and stuff where I haven't minded her, so I give her a bit of credit. But I I honestly, I don't... Like, I'm not going to come to her or this movie's defense. I think this movie is exactly what you expect it to be when you press play. Okay. And, um, yep. Yeah. (laughs) You know what's great about this movie? It's short. It's an hour and a half. Yeah. And a lot of times with Netflix, they just add so much extra stuff. So, you know what? I'm actually grateful. All right. Okay. Oh, also, Hardcore CanCon, The Mom... Naomi yep. Sneakus, who's like in every yogurt commercial in Canada. <laughs> okay. And then the wise old lady in the nursing home is Jane Eastwood. Yeah. Who I who love. I, I loved. My legitimate best moment of this film was when she comes and enjoys their dance practice. I loved that moment. That wasn't Jane Eastwood. Uh, I, th- I thought it was at first too, but it's not. It's okay. a different old lady. Okay, we'll cut that part out then. Ah, I think we should leave it. It shows how interchangeable every character in this movie is. Oh, no. (laughs) All right, well, so you're saying work it is perfectly serviceable. I am saying it's a skip it and go to bring it on instead. I'm saying they're both a perfectly fine way to pass an hour and a half of your time. Fair enough. (laughs) All right, Joe. All right, do we... Want to do bingo or no? Bingo! Not a good bingo. All right, let's do this. All right, what have you got? Do it rapid fire. Musicality. Yes. Perfect date. Yes. Rich people problems. Obviously. Mediocre white boys. Always. always, Queer and slutty secondary characters. Uh, Always. Sexual awakenings. Yep. Uh, In uh, Work It, we have a dead parent. Okay, so how much did you laugh at the dead parent stuff (laughs) in Work It? The minute she's like, I have to get into Duke, I turn to Brian and I'm just like, dead, dad's dead. dead. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. So terrible. So terrible. I'll give some acerbic wit to bring it on. You bet your butt you will. Uh, unlikely friendship between the two team leads and bring it on? I think so. Yeah. Convenient expertise because they all end up knowing how to choreograph, having no experience with choreography. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We've got a nice love triangle. And a hardcore can-con on the work it. There we go. That yep. actually gives us uh, almost two lines, but definitely <laughs> one. Okay, cool. I mean, it helps when you've got two different texts that you can work from. It does, yeah. Oh, actually, I'm going to put in gaslighting because Aaron lies to Torrance the entire time. Oh, that's right. So it does that. give us two lines. Bam, bam, bam. <laughs> 
So if you want to talk to us about how Bring It On is amazing and you love Joe or Work It was fine, actually, and you agree with Brenna. No, I don't accept that. (laughs) Find us on hashtag HKHSPod on the Twitters. If you want just me, that's Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And Joe? I am B stole my remote, and that's the letter B. And if you've got something longer, like some Bring It On fan fiction, which Joe would love to read, (gasps) send it to hkhspod at gmail.com. Next week, we are going to be ring... One more time. Wrinkling. Wrinkling in time. (laughs) And next week, we are going to be reading Madeline Dongles? Dongel? Not sure. Langel? Langel? Wrinkle in time. Everybody knows Wrinkle in time. We'll just say that. And I am reading both the book and the comic, and we're going to watch the film. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm actually pretty excited because I never read this at the normal age. Oh, okay. I literally know nothing about this book except for the fact that it's got some fantasy stuff in it. So I like magic, and I'm excited for Ava DuVernay. Right on. Me too. All right. So until next time, I will bring it on. (gasps) Ah, yes. Yes. Okay. But that, see, I was mean because I left it for you to work it. Uh, I I will step up. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, Joe. No, Joe. You will step up to the streets. (gasps) That one's actually my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Just end the show. Just end it now.